Um, if you would, take your Bibles and go ahead and to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And I just want to make sure that I mention that before we leave this morning, we're going to engage in the Lord's Supper. And so if you have not already gotten those elements, um, I want to encourage you to uh, surreptitiously sneak out during my sermon and grab those if you want to participate in the Lord's Supper. I failed to say that at the welcome time, and so it's on me, and you've got a hall pass. If you've got to get out, just uh, be quiet as you do, all right? Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. All right, Colossians chapter 3, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to wrap up a series we've been in for the last five weeks on relationships, and we've been studying Colossians chapter 3, and each week has built on a foundation that Paul established at the very beginning of Colossians 3. And so before I head into our text, I just want to recap what we've seen because it is essential for understanding how we actually do what we're being told to do in our text this morning. I want to start by reminding you that Paul begins this chapter by reminding us that Christ is our life. You find that in verse 4 of Colossians 3. What he's saying is, is really a reference to a miracle that takes place when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible teaches that you're miraculously united to Jesus himself by the very power of God. You're united to the death of Jesus. That's how your sin can be punished at the cross and you can be forgiven of it. You're united to the death of Jesus. It also is a union not only with the death of Christ, but you're united to the resurrection life of Christ as well. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in each person who trusts in Jesus to live a brand new kind of life. So Jesus is literally living in and through every man, woman, and child who's trusting in him as their Lord and Savior. That's why Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says that it's no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. That's why Paul says Jesus is your life. And since Jesus is our life, he transforms everything about our life. That's what verses 5 through 17 unpack in vivid detail. When Jesus lives in us, he transforms us by allowing us to put off our old self, to put off the patterns of life and sin that destroy and break our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Things like sexual immorality and anger and malice and slander and ungodly talk. Jesus living in us, he enables us to put those things out of our lives forever. And then he enables us to put on things that make us more and more like him. Things like compassion and kindness and humility and forgiveness. Jesus lives in us. And Jesus living in you will transform the way you live in relationship with the people all around you. So it's Christ in you doing a work that only he can do that transforms your relationships. That is what the foundation is for Colossians chapter 3. And everything else we talk about is based on that. And here's what that means then. If you aren't trusting in Jesus today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, then you are not united to Jesus and you are not able to live in the kind of relationships you're being called to live in in our text this morning. You don't have the power in yourself. That's why you need 
Jesus, and that will be the centerpiece of our celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. We'll be reminded again that in order to do what the Bible's telling us to do in relationships, we need Jesus, and we're blessed, people, because we don't just need Jesus, we have him. He gave his life for us and lives his life through us. We'll celebrate that vividly in the Lord's Supper before we go. But this morning, I want us to look at the last specific relationship that Paul details in Colossians chapter 3. It's the relationship between employees and their employers. So look at Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, and I will finish in chapter 4 verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 says this, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God for us this morning. And the word there, bondservants, in verse 22, if you're reading in another English translation, you may have the word slave there. It's because that is an accurate depiction of this role. Bondservants were slaves. That's why verse 1 of chapter 4 is directed toward masters, because this is a passage primarily about the first century dynamic between slaves and their masters. I just want to make something clear. I didn't have time for us this morning to go down a long road in explanation. But just be clear that Paul is not writing this to promote slavery. As a matter of fact, the abolitionist movement of the 1800s was largely fueled by the biblical truths of Scripture. The reason Paul writes this is to address something in the lives of these Colossian believers that was just a significant part of their day-to-day life. It was a significant part of the Roman economic system. Nearly half of of all the Roman Empire were slaves. And I think it's really important to note that by the time Paul writes this in the first century, the practice of slavery in the Roman Empire was really dramatically different than the practice of slavery that occurred in our nation during the 1700s and 1800s. In the first century, most Roman slaves could expect to receive their freedom before they reached an old age. As a matter of fact, nearly half of all Roman slaves received their freedom by the time they were 30 years old. Many people even sold themselves into slavery as a way to advance in a world where many people were starving to death and unable to provide the basics of life for themselves and their families. And so while it's difficult for me to understand and certainly for all of us to identify with, for many people who were living in a world that had very little opportunity to even find food or shelter for your family, for many, 
Slavery actually offered some a way to receive food and shelter and most often a modest wage. Now, I'm not saying it was a good or a glorious thing at all, but I'm just reminding you that Paul isn't writing this primarily to condone even that practice as different as it was from slavery in the 17th and 18th century. What he's doing here is he's recognizing something that's simply a part of their everyday lives. Something that, by the way, the vast majority of people in this city would not have been able to change. It's a major part of their economic system. It's a major way that they're providing for themselves and for their families. And so for this morning, the best application for the truths that we're going to see in our text today is not so much slavery and masters, but more about how we provide for our families Namely, our relationship as employees with our employers or as employers with our employees. It's how Jesus desires to transform our lives at work through the transformation of our relationships in our workplace. So what I want to do is show you the answer to that question in our text. How does Jesus transform our relationships with our employers and our employees? And let me just start by giving you the big idea of the text that we just read. Here's the big idea for this morning. When Jesus lives in us, our work becomes worship. When Jesus lives in us, our work becomes worship. Listen, the primary way that Jesus wants to transform your relationships at work is by transforming the very nature of everything you do, including your work. In other words, when Jesus comes to live in you, he desires your whole life to be a life of worship, and that includes everything you do as part of your job. Let me show you that's clearly the focus of our text. Verse 22, he says that we should work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The Lord is the focal point in that verse. Verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The Lord is the focal point of our work. Verse 24 says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then when he speaks to masters in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, you also have a master in heaven. Here's the reality of this passage. Whatever you do in your job, whatever your work, even if you're working as a volunteer, whatever you do, your work is intended to be a service for the Lord. And that makes your work worship. Listen, whether you're a police officer or an aerospace engineer or a stay-at-home mom or an attorney, no matter what you do with the work of your lives, Jesus desires to live in you and give you power, power that only he has to do your job and to do it as an act of worship to the glory of Jesus Christ. I hope you see how that infuses meaning to everything you do. I don't know if you've heard about a new trend. It's called quiet quitting. There's a trend happening in post-COVID world where people are doing something called quiet quitting. In other words, as they went through COVID, many people began to reevaluate the, the meaning in their lives, especially concerning their job. How, 
How much does my job matter? How much is, is it really important that I do what I do? And many people are doing something called quietly quitting. And what that means is they aren't actually quitting their job. They're just kind of receding back from doing anything above and beyond their specific tasks. They're trying to stay home more. They're trying to work remote more. They're trying to do as little as they possibly can do because they feel this inner sense of meaninglessness in their job. They don't know, does it matter at all that I do what I do? Whether I work as a tech person for this company remotely or a salesperson for this this company on the road, or no matter what it is, does my work matter? And they're receding from their work. They're quietly quitting. And friend, I want you to know, what they're searching for is the meaning that only Jesus can give us. And when Jesus lives in you, here's what he does. He makes everything you do, no matter what it is, an opportunity to worship him and be eternally significant. When Jesus lives in you, your work becomes worship. And I just want to mention really quickly, because it's the start of school this year, that I think there's a lot of carryover for our students who are starting back to school. Students, during this time of your life, your primary job is to get an education, all right? And I know the students collectively groan. But your job is to do your work at school. And I believe this passage applies to your life in a really powerful way. How do you approach your work at school? Even more, how does Jesus desire to enable you to approach your work at school, even if you don't understand how math is going to factor in your future, like maybe some of my kids wonder how math will factor into their future. How do you engage in math class and science and the arts in a way that is meaningful eternally? Will you do it when your work becomes worship? So the question then becomes, if that's the desire of Jesus living in us, what does that look like in a very practical way. Well, that's what the rest of our passage actually unpacks for us. What I want to do is show you four ways that Jesus living in us enables our work to become worship. Number one, our work becomes worship when we do it obediently. When we do it obediently. Look at verse 22 again. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly Masters. All right, this isn't complicated. The primary command for employees is to obey their employers. Now, here's the good news you don't need to go to seminary to understand what the Bible's saying there, right? It's good news for me because I didn't go to seminary. The Bible's clear. The primary call of Christian employees is to obey their boss. Can I put that in, in, in everyday language? Can I, do you, am I, is my mic on? (laughs) Do what your boss tells you to do. Like, I know this is really profound, but I'm a profound guy, so let me give you a great statement. Your job is to do your job, right? 
You, you, want, you want me to kind of dig down in that? Here's what the reality is. It honors God. Your life is called to be worship. Your work is called to be worship. And you want to honor God in worship. So it honors God when you honor the authority that God has placed in your life. And your employer is a God-given authority in your life. I want you to notice how Paul actually describes the way we should obey and how deep this goes. Verse 22 says, Obey not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He says, don't just obey obey by eye service. That means don't just go through the motions when the boss is watching. He says, do your job with sincerity of heart. That word sincerity translates a word that refers to personal integrity. He's saying you should obey your boss and do your job when all eyes are on you and when no one else is around. It's called personal integrity integrity. Obey your employers with personal integrity. Do what they've told you to do. And I thought it might be helpful if I spelled this out for us a little bit. If your boss just so happens to tell you that your job is to surf the internet at work, then by all means, surf the internet at work. But if that's not your job then stop surfing the internet and do your job. Uh, Yeah, that got quiet. It's almost like I asked a question and you didn't know what to say. Listen, if your boss says your job is to hang out with your coworkers and talk to them about your social life or the latest reality TV show while people are shopping in the store, then by all means, hang out with your coworkers and talk about your personal lives. But listen, if your job is to help customers while they're shopping in that store, then stop hanging out with your coworkers talking about reality TV and help your customers while they shop. If your boss says your job's to balance spreadsheets or mow grass or sweep floors, here's the application of the Bible. Do your job and do it the way your boss tells you to. Your job is to do your job the way your boss tells you to do your job. Mind-blowing stuff, I know. I know. That's just because I'm deep. I'm a deep thinker that way. I want to just tell you guys something, and I don't care if you're starting out on the workforce for the very first time or you've been around for a long time. You are not entitled to your paycheck, bro. You're not. Entitlement is a disease, not, not, not a virtue. You are supposed to earn it by doing what you've been told to do. Now, listen, I understand that there are jobs that, hey, this is the section of personal responsibility to my left. I understand that many jobs have downtime. I get it. There are scheduled breaks inside our day. I get it. There are some who work very long hours on salaried positions, and some of your job is certainly to build relationships with those who work alongside you. I get it. There are times where your boss is perfectly comfortable with you checking your phone or chatting with your coworkers. I totally get it. Two or three times a week, I make it a point to walk through the hallways of our office and just chat with the people in our office to build relationships with the people that I work alongside. I totally get it. I'm not talking about that. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying if those things are keeping you from doing your actual job, you haven't earned your pay. 
And when you collect a paycheck for a job you didn't do, you know what you're doing? You're taking money that isn't yours. Do you know what that's called? It's called stealing. And stealing doesn't honor God. And laziness doesn't honor God. And negligence doesn't honor God. And deceiving your boss by working hard when your boss is around and then putting her in neutral when he's gone lacks integrity and it doesn't honor God. And Jesus says his desire is to make your work worship for the glory of God. So obey your boss and work with integrity. Amen? Well, Monday's coming. But I want you to notice that Paul puts a short qualifier here at the end of verse 22 on how we obey. He says, fearing the Lord. So so he's saying you don't obey your boss because your boss is so sharp. And I'm speaking to all the employees of FBCMI. You don't obey because your boss is so sharp. You obey because obeying is an act of reverence to the Lord who put your boss in your life. And the reason we obey our boss is because we have a master in heaven whose name is Jesus. And he has decided to put that boss, that authority in our life. He is our ultimate authority. We do what he tells us to do. Here's what that means, though. If your employer tells you to do something that is dishonoring to God, then you had better obey God rather than men, even if it means you'll lose your job. Guys, this defines what we can and cannot do in our jobs. And I've got to tell you, this dynamic is going to grow more and more and more as our culture continues to abandon absolute morality and the authority of God's word and plummets headlong into this downward spiral of immorality on every level. It's going to be harder for you to do your job as a Christian. We know that. And we had rather obey God than men. For instance, many of you know that a member of our church is in the middle of a a very public struggle with our Brevard County School Board. Matt Woodside is a middle school gym teacher for the Brevard Public Schools. And uh, for those of you who don't know Matt, since I've already said his name out loud, Matt's the guy who plays the guitar over here, the the tall guy with a really good voice. Um, and, And so that's Matt. Well, listen, a couple years ago, Matt was the teacher of the year. He is highly qualified to do his job. He does it with excellence. He is a 15-year veteran of the public school system. Well, our county school board has now begun mandating over the last couple of years that biological girls and boys should be allowed to change their clothes with students of the opposite sex if they so choose. And that means we have middle school boys in this community who are taking off their clothes in the same room with middle school girls in our schools, right? To add to that, teachers are being directed by the school board to oversee that behavior at the risk of losing their jobs. On top of that, public school employees aren't even allowed to notify the parents of those students that that's going on in their kids' locker room. Because it's sick, it's gross, it's just plain wrong. It would be illegal in any other context. It's happening right now, and people in this room have that as part of their job. And as a follower of Jesus Christ... 
Matt has refused to allow it in his classes. Uh, listen. Yeah, I praise God. At the risk of losing his job, per the letter he's received on Brevard Public Schools' letterhead. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he fears the Lord more than the Brevard County School Board. And he would rather lose his job than his soul. So I praise God. Listen, I praise God. But here's the reality. That's all of our call. That we would say we have one Lord. One Lord. And under his authority we yield to every authority he's placed in our life. And we do it with a glad and joyful heart until honoring man's authority dishonors Christ's. And then we had rather obey God than man. That's how we make our work worship. And may we be a room full of people who submit to authority like no one else in this community, who make our bosses' lives better because of the way that we do our work with glad and sincere hearts, and at the same time who say, I'd rather starve than disobey my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do our work as worship when we do it obediently. Number two, our work becomes worship when we do it wholeheartedly. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work, look at this word, heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When Paul says, listen, we should work heartily, what he's saying there, he's saying we should put our whole heart and soul. That word heart really comes from the root word of our soul. He's saying we should put everything we are into whatever it is that we're doing. At the very least, and I think there's more to this, but at the very least, we should care about everything we do at our work. Have you ever seen somebody do their job (laughs) half-heartedly? Oh, yeah. I thought about making a list of the places in the community where you could go to watch it if you wanted to, but I feel like I would uh, isolate a lot of you. Well, listen, Christians should never work like that, right? Verse 23 says, I'll tell you the best way that you can work with your whole heart, deeply caring about everything you do at work. He says, do it as to the Lord. Just think how it would change your work if you stopped working for your boss or your customers and you just started working for the Lord. Think about it. If you mow grass as your job, how would you mow grass if you showed up at Jesus' house and you mowed his grass? I hope you'd mow a straight line. Man, it really bugs me when you don't mow straight. Anyhow, (laughs) mow a straight line. Listen, if you work at Chick-fil-A, how would you fill a box of waffle fries if you knew Jesus is the one who placed the order? You wouldn't take a large box of waffle fries and put medium amounts of fries in it, would you? You wouldn't hand, you wouldn't hand a customer a half-filled box of waffle fries, right? Like, you wouldn't let that little section at the top, you know, the one that goes like this, you wouldn't let those waffle fries go like that and then just set, like, ketchup and condiments on it like it's there to be a shelf for ketchup and not filled to the brim with waffle fries. I feel like I really took a turn there on a very personal interest. I'll tell you what you'd do if you knew those waffle fries were going, Jesus, I hope this is what you'd do. You'd take those waffle fries, you'd put them in, you'd shake the box... 
Because when you shake the box, it all settles down. Then you'd take that scoop, you'd put in some more, right? Then you'd hand him a full box of waffle fries. What'd your pastor preach about? Well, he was pretty passionate about Chick-fil-A's waffle fries. So you know the norm. It's what he usually does. How would, it, how would it change the way you do your work if you did your work as though it was directly for Jesus? Because when you do, it's worship. Guys, I know I've told you this before, but I'll never forget how that impacted my life while I was in college. I worked my way through school um, painting and hanging wallpaper. So for about six or seven years, I was painting and hanging wallpaper through the day, going to school at night. And at about year five, I I began to get a little frustrated because I knew God had called me to preach. I knew he called me to pastor, and I got to tell you, almost every week when I go stand over here at the last song before I preach, I look out over this group of people, and you need to know that when I was about 22 years old, I remember standing at work, envisioning the day that I would stand and preach in front of a group of people like you. You're a dream come true for me, and I love it. But I had three more years of work that I wasn't going to be preaching. And I was getting a little frustrated because there I am painting baseboards in somebody's house. And I got to tell you, there are a few jobs dirtier than painting baseboards. You know why? Because nobody cleans their baseboards. (laughs) Expect the college kid who's supposed to be painting them to clean the baseboards. Anyhow, I digress. So there I am one day laying on the floor and I'm daydreaming about how awesome it would be when I have the opportunity to make my work glorify Jesus by showing how awesome I believe he is. And at that moment, I'm laying on the ground painting those baseboards and the Spirit brought 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to my mind. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it was like the Holy Spirit brought this question to my heart. Titus, what makes you think you are gonna glorify Jesus in your preaching if you don't glorify him in your painting? And that's all it took. I started painting for the glory of Jesus by painting every house I walked in as though that house belonged to Jesus. I got to tell you what I did. I even started painting the tops of door frames. Nobody paints the tops of door frames. No one. You know why? Because nobody will ever see the tops of door frames. You've got to climb a ladder and look down on the top of a door frame just to see it. So every painter just blows by the tops of door frames, not me. I started painting the tops of door frames because I thought the first thing God sees when he looks down from heaven is the tops of a door frame. And I want to paint that. It's time for somebody to give him a view. I'm just kidding. Theologically, I know that's not how it works. All our theologians in the room are like, God is omnipresent, Titus. No wonder you didn't go to seminary. It's showing in your theology. I get it. But I did, I did paint really badly under windows so that the devil would see that looking up and not have. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. I didn't do that either. Here's what I did. I painted the tops of door frames, not because it was God's view from heaven, but because I knew there's only two people that would see that and appreciate it. Me and God. And my work is for Jesus. And when he's the only one who sees and knows, it's worth it. Do your work wholeheartedly as though it's to the Lord. Number three, our work becomes worship when we do it hopefully. When I say hopefully, I mean full of hope, filled with a heart that has hope. Verse 24 says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. My, my first real job 
besides odds and ends jobs that I'd done as an early teenager, my first real job for the summer was actually working two jobs for the same guy in my community when I was 15 years old. During the day, we would build wooden fences all day long. So my job was to carry two-by-fours and wooden pickets around the job site. And then once everything was placed around the job site, I would help him put the fences together. Then I'd go home and I'd eat dinner. And then after dinner, my parents would drop me off at a trucking depot where I would load refrigerated trucks full of frozen pizzas that would be delivered to local grocery stores. And I got to tell you, it wasn't a lot of fun working all summer long when I was 15 years old, two jobs, one during the day, one at night. But there was one day every week that I really looked forward to. It was called payday. I found payday was a really exceptional motivator because when I was tired or I'd rather be playing with my friends, all I would think about was that payday is coming. Payday is coming and I will be glad I did this job this way on payday. And what Paul is saying in verse 24 is there's more than one kind of payday, folks. He's saying one day the Lord Jesus himself is going to reward all your work with an eternal inheritance. He's not saying that salvation will be bought by the way you do your work. What he's saying is that salvation includes an eternal reward for every good thing we do as it's done through the power and the work of Jesus in us. In other words, he's saying Jesus sees and he knows everything about your life. He sees everything that your boss might miss and he will reward everything your boss might overlook. So we can work with hope, knowing that we have an eternal reward that awaits us when Jesus comes again and everything is said and done. And here's what this ultimately is. It is a call to work with eternity in mind. In other words, he's saying, don't make getting rich in this world your ultimate aim. Don't make career advancement your primary goal. Don't cut corners in your integrity to get ahead with the bottom line. He's saying, spend your life Poured out in work, laboring for something that's going to last forever, namely the glory and the kingdom of God. And no matter what your job is, if it's done for the glory of Jesus, it's eternally significant and has an everlasting reward. For instance, if God's stirring your heart, guys, to serve the poor or to be a missionary in a third world country, you need to know it is likely that you are never going to earn a big payday in this life. But when you step foot into the kingdom of heaven, what a payday it will be. When your life's work is laid out before the Lord, And your heavenly master, Jesus himself, looks at you and sees his gracious power having been displayed in the faithfulness of your job that may never have earned you a lot of money, may never have earned you any notoriety, may never have advanced you inside of your culture, but it was done as worship for him and your Lord and Savior on the day when all the houses and all the gold and all the culture has faded away like a bad dream when Jesus looks you in the eye and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That servant is what he's talking about here. Bond servants of Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Work with hope. 
hopefully looking to the day when the real payday comes in Christ. And the last thing we see is this. Our work becomes worship when we do it righteously. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 again. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he shifts over here to the responsibility of those in positions of authority. He says, listen, for those of you who are in authority, your work becomes worship when you treat all of the people under your authority justly and fairly. That word justly, it comes from the root word for the word righteousness. It just means do your, do your work righteously. Namely, do what is right for your employees. Give them fair wages. Give them fair expectations. Don't show favoritism. Be just. Be fair. He includes everything that's right and good there in verses 12 through 17. Show them the righteousness of compassion and kindness and humility and patience. All of those things are right. They're fair and they are the way Christ calls you to to treat the people under your authority. But I want you to notice what Paul lays down as a fundamental truth that for us in positions of authority need to always remember. It's the last phrase in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying to bosses? Here's what he's saying. He's saying you might be a boss, but you aren't the boss. Jesus is. So what if you, manager, owner, operator, began to lead like Jesus was the owner, manager, operator, and you were his servant? You are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know you might own your company. That doesn't make you the boss. You have a master whose name is Jesus, and he is watching over you. He is keeping an account of a different kind of book for your business. And one of the primary things that he is taking account as he's accounting for your business is he is keeping an account of how you treat the people under your authority. Can you imagine if you started to take God's way of thinking and impose it on the way you led in your business life? What if you didn't measure your bottom line by the amount of money you made this year, but in the amount of good you've done for the people who work for you? The way you've improved their lives and their families by the grace and kindness and compassion and patience you've shown them. Well, remember, you have a master in heaven who's calling you as his servant to treat the people under your authority that way. And when you do, your work becomes worship. So, brothers and sisters, whether you're an employer or an employee, here's what I pray. I pray you will go to work the next time you go to work with a brand new goal. And it's not to make money. It's not to get ahead. It's not to advance your career. That you would work with the goal of bringing glory to Jesus Christ so that your work would be worshipped. And you would do it obediently and wholeheartedly and hopefully and righteously. And that actually brings me back to the way we started this morning You have only one hope for actually doing that. And it's not that you would roll up your sleeves and do your very best and try your very hardest. It's that Jesus would give you his power. That's why you need Jesus. And the good news is you don't just need Jesus. You have Jesus. 
Christ is your life as you trust in him. And that brings me to the Lord's Supper. When we go to the Lord's Supper, I hope that it's clear to you what we're doing. We're taking these elements and we're putting them into us. We eat the bread, we drink the cup as a display of the fact that we are trusting in the person and power of Christ in us. So as we go from this time of teaching, we're going in the faith we have in Jesus that he's living in us. He's our hope to restore us to God the Father, to forgive our sin and raise us up to a brand new life. It's Christ in us. And so would you take out the the elements this morning and let's move into a time of meditation over the Lord's Supper. And before we open those up and before we begin, I just want to have a a quick moment of meditation. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer. And this morning I know was about our relationship with our employees or our employers, but we've talked over the last few weeks with specific details about our relationships with husbands and wives and parents and children and friends and brothers and neighbors. And there may be a place in your life where your relationships are broken and you realize you need the work of Jesus. Ultimately, you may realize that your relationship with God is broken. And you need the work of Jesus to make you right with God. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, would you just call on Jesus to save you? Acknowledge your sin and your brokenness and your inability to restore yourself. And by faith, acknowledge that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin. That your sin was punished and forgiven by the cross of Christ. And confess that you believe Jesus rose again to new life and will raise you up to a brand new kind of life by his power. Call on Jesus to save you and claim the promise that all who call on Christ will be saved. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, there may be that place where you would say, here's where I need to see the resurrection power of Jesus. And I pray that as I take this Lord's Supper, I would really believe that the power of Christ is working in me because Jesus himself is living in me. Father, I I ask you to press in our hearts the reality of the gospel right now. I pray for broken relationships in this room. People whose relationship with you has been broken by their own sin. I pray they would call on Jesus and trust in him. Not only receiving forgiveness for their sin, but receiving power to live a brand new life. Pray for those whose marriages are broken right now. That they would trust, not in their ability to restore, but in Christ working in them. Raising them up to a brand new kind of life. Lord, I pray for those whose relationship with their parents or children is broken right now. Lord, that they would trust in the power of Christ in them raise them up to a brand new life. Lord, I pray for all of us as we engage in the various forms of work where we know we'll experience brokenness in ourselves and with other people. I pray we would trust in the power of Christ in us to 
raise us up to a brand new life, a life where our work becomes worship as Christ lives in us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would take out the bread by peeling back that first layer and hold that bread in your hand. And remember, this represents the body of Jesus. That Christ came to this earth and he lived in a body as a, as a very real man, as one of us. And as a man, he lived the life that you and I failed to live. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then in that perfect, sinless life, in that body, Christ went to the cross where he suffered and was crucified. He bore the punishment for your sin. And so as we take this bread, we're receiving by faith. We're saying by faith that we receive the work of Christ in his body to restore us to God, to bear our punishment for sin, to give us a brand new kind of life in these bodies. So if you would, would you say a prayer of thanksgiving with me before we take this bread? Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth and living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, and then coming to live in us through the power of your resurrection. Lord, we take this bread with thanksgiving and we pray for your glory that you'd receive it as worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you take the bread? And then peel back that next layer. Contemplate for a moment the, the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. That as a sacrifice for our sin, the blood of Christ was shed for us. And it's through the sacrifice of Christ's shed blood that we have forgiveness. We have complete restoration with God. And we will never bear the guilt of our sin ever again. Jesus was condemned so that we never would be. So you live in a restored relationship with Almighty God because of Jesus It's reason to give thanks. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and let's give a prayer of thanks for the the blood of Christ. And for those of you who struggle with a particular sin in your past that you just can't get over, would you claim the promise of the cross that as you trust in Jesus, your sin is removed from you and forgiven and you are accepted by God himself. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for our sin. Be glorified, God, as we trust in Jesus. And Lord, I do pray that, God, we would realize that our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and we will bear our sin no more because of Christ. And Lord, we ask all of these things with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take that juice?